0: Well, first of all, thank you, Elisa, and also to Zobia, who can't be here, for asking me to come along and speak today. I think um, I'm very grateful to you for giving me this chance to talk to a new set of people, a few familiar faces, perhaps in the room, but basically a, a new set of people, and to share some of the, I suppose, thoughts or um, that really William Gould and I, in the book that um, Elisa just mentioned, sought to explore. So. Um, I'll, I'll just start if that's okay i have a clock behind me. but it may have stopped so i may occasionally look at my watch to see how far how far through my time i've gone so um, i don't think it's a surprise to anyone in the room for me to say what i'm about to say which is that south asia's transition from colonialism to independence in 1947 was undoubtedly um, let's change the slide undoubtedly one of the most momentous global events of the mid-20th century, the 20th century as a whole, I would suggest. Not surprisingly, therefore, the early post-colonial years in the subcontinent now exercise a great pull for a whole range of historians who, to put it very simply, explore this key period on the one hand to identify legacies, continuities, possibly changes um, from the colonial era, and on the other to identify developments that may help to explain processes at work there in the 21st century. So as I just said in my paper today, I'll be drawing on the book and there it is on the screen, Boundaries of Belonging that William Gould and I published um, late 2019, which itself came out of a project in which we and others, it it was very much a collective project, investigated the various transitions From subject to citizen, from subjecthood to citizenhood or citizenship that took place in the context of early colonial, post colonial rather, um, South Asia. Now, we chose because of our own familiarity with them, but um, also because we felt that they worked well together to focus on two localities. And we got the word locality into the title of our book. So, our two localities were the state of UP in India, and the province of Sindh in Pakistan, and you can maybe just about make them out on the map, but it's probably a bit small. Um, for us, these hinterlands, as we thought of them, of partition, provided us with an effective context for examining broader meanings of independence for India and Pakistan's new citizens. What these places also had in common was that they were both located in close proximity To where central state power was directly exercised after 1947, namely the then federal capitals of Delhi and Karachi, Karachi being Pakistan's capital in those early days. So by by exploring developments on both sides of this new 1947 border through the same lens was intended or we hoped would allow us to draw attention to how the state in its various guises, operated in these two new countries, as well as what being a citizen could signify for ordinary Indians and Pakistanis during a time of undoubted flux and uncertainty. The fluid and fluctuating links um, between Pakistan and India were epitomised, really, by continuing connections between people moving back or moving from one to the other and sometimes back again, um, together with the movement of information or sometimes misinformation in both directions, all of which combined to directly affect perceptions of who belonged where. Notions of citizenship, and along with this, what being a citizen in practice entailed, came to be closely linked with the politics of belonging or not belonging, the new states involved. Moreover, during the early post colonial years, ideas about and forms of citizenship were created, forged, as people like to say, by contingent processes of interaction between the state, say its representatives and institutions at different levels, in different forums, and society, its citizens in the making. And much of this engagement was linked to interactions and experiences taking place at the level of the everyday state, by which I mean specific, you know, local level configurations of governance, governance practices and discourses and bureaucratic representations themselves rooted in ongoing contingencies of power relations and social contexts. Um, This concept of the everyday state, which is now deployed across the humanities and social sciences, had its basis in, I suppose, ethnographic approaches to the presence of the state in marginal areas, but then it became expanded to encompass both the strategies of the state to assert itself and the responses of the people concerned. In other words, looking at everyday processes of state formation, Means looking at how actors in specific localities are impacted by and react to efforts of state actors to reorder social, political, and economic life. And when we, um, that is William Gould and I, first began the sort of joint project that eventually resulted in this book, although there were other outputs, as they call them, along the way, we were very influenced by, say, for example, this um, particular. volume, um, perhaps familiar to you, um, published in 2001. An edited volume in which um, Fuller and Benai famously argued that in contemporary, or what was then I suppose late 20th century India, um, state and society merged in the daily lives of most Indians, um, and the boundary between them was blurred and negotiable according to social context and position. Hence their work um, focused on how the large, amorphous and impersonal Indian state affected the day-to-day lives of ordinary citizens. Or put another way, for many people living in South Asia, the state perhaps represents, or this, you know, uh, this is how people wrote about it, a machinery through which things could get done. Um, even fixed with its formal rules, diverted or manipulated using the right contacts or or influence. So there's that sort of, you know, working the system to, 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 to varying extents. Anyway, so deploying this approach, the history and let's say the historical specificities of South Asia are now recognized as providing really an ideal space Um, and ample scope for investigating the distinct yet intertwined means through which the post-colonial state reconstituted itself after 1947, alongside the development and the consolidation of different kinds of practices and also resistances too. By exploring the state in this way, light can be shed on the complexity of those state-society relations as these reveal themselves in the everyday context of local life, including specific considerations of of governance practices as well as as those ongoing contingencies of power relations and social contexts. Now, um, political independence in South Asia, not surprisingly, heightened popular expectations As to how governance on the part of the state would operate after that 14th 15th august turning point decolonization or the end of empire in short cultivated new public expectations about what the change would mean in people's everyday lives but often in practice when we look at the period more closely we find disconnections between what india and pakistan's new citizens heard In their leader's speeches that could be relayed to them in the press or by word of mouth or um, if they attended a you know public gathering and what they experienced firsthand at the level of the province or the district or the city or town in which they lived and where they interacted with that state and its representatives. And these are just two photographs taken from you know, those early, early years. And on the left, you can only just about make him out. But at a public meeting held in Lahore in August 49, for instance, um, then Prime Minister Liakat Ali Khan asserted that everyone in Pakistan had the same right, and obviously he used the word, you know, this idea of rights, to be provided with food, shelter, clothing, education, and medical facilities, implying. That the state recognized its responsibilities for um, providing run of the mill necessities, the run of the mill necessities of life. And in a sim- similarly sort of paternalistic um, vein, at a public meeting in New Delhi, um, a bit earlier, this was at the end of January 1948, so around the time that Gandhi was assassinated, the Lyakut's Indian counterpart, Jawaharlal Nehru, um, had identified as a major national problem. Um, the raising of, of um, 340 or 50 million people, raising them economically, certainly raising them educationally. So, this kind of signaling, really, of the practical, again, let's call it the day to day meanings and, and expectations and rights of, of citizenship helped to establish that broader context within which Indians and Pakistanis engaged with the sort of new realities of what it meant to be. A citizen in the post-47 environment. So my paper today is really focusing on the dynamics or some aspects of these dynamics between citizens and the everyday state as these unfolded. And I'm going to take the whole business of elections really as the as the the lens or prism through which um, to explore this and elections, whether they actually took place or not, I should add, because. Um, they don't always or didn't always take place when or as expected. So in it, is, I'm going to be drawing on a chapter in that book by William Gordon myself, where we look at constitution making and the and people's experiences of elections. And in that chapter, we start off by, I suppose, quoting um, a very famous poem, here on the left, um, by Ramdari Singh Vinka, entitled Vacate the Throne, The People Are Coming said to be written on the 26th of January, 1950, the day when India's constitution became effective. So here comes the biggest republic in the world, prepare the throne for the 300 million people. The coronation is not of the king today, it is of the people. And we'll come back to that again in a minute. Um, now, Rohit Day in his 2018 book, um, A People's Constitution, The Everyday Life of Law in the Indian Republic, I think it's done a great service by showing how the Constitution in the in case in the context of India, um, rather than being a document you know, just written in English, created by elite cons- um, consensus and with little influence on India's greater population. In fact, this is his argument transformed really the daily lives of citizens in profound and lasting ways. Indeed, the Constitution, according to day came alive in the popular imagination so much so. That ordinary people attributed meaning to its existence, took recourse to it, and argued with it. In other words, as Day argues, the constitution decisively made a difference in people's lives in the post colonial period, particularly during the Noruvian years, you know, from say 1950 to 1964. Nor should we underestimate the amount of popular interest taken. Um, in the making of the Constitution itself on both sides of the new border. Indeed, the progress of India's constitution making was closely followed in Pakistan, in, albeit, I suppose, inflected by awareness that developments across the border in India were proceeding mm-hmm. at a faster pace. So in January 1950, it, yeah, um, influential um, English newspaper Dawn. So the timing of um, what I'm about to share with you, neatly coinciding with the inauguration of the Indian constitution, um, a a, um, a linked series of three linked articles entitled Pakistan, your state um, appeared and in them, the author set out ideas about what constituted a civilians civil liberties. And these are just some quotes from um, those those, um, articles. So civil liberties, it was argued for a part, rather, of the rights of citizenship that an individual commands as a citizen of a state. But you may ask, what is a citizen and what is meant by the rights of citizenship? The author proceeded to answer his own question by then explaining that while some civic duties were imposed by law, a good citizen, as he put it, realizes the highest freedom in discharging all the moral and legal duties of citizenship, because true freedom implies the existence for everyone of the opportunity to contribute out of the richness of one's own experience to the furtherance of the common good. And so for him, a good citizen should not be a passive instrument at the hands of the government. Rather, citizens, he emphasized, should um, exert themselves to find out what is conducive to the welfare of the body, uh, of the body politic of which they are a part. And, and one way in which Indians and Pakistanis you know, anticipated that they could pursue their newly acquired rights and responsibilities as citizens of these independent states, whether or not their constitution was in place, And we shouldn't forget, and I'm sure people in the room are well aware of this, but it took until 1956 for Pakistan's constitution to be promulgated, in contrast to 1950 um, for India. One of the ways of doing this was by taking part in elections, participating in elections. So just to quote um, Dinka's poem again, the prospect of this, of this participation as citizens in independent states. free free independent states was was exhilarating. So as the poem went on, give way, listen to the thunderous roar of the chariot of time, vacate the throne, the people are coming. But of course, elections meant engaging with the state, not simply the politicians that led it, but also the say the government servants, the bureaucrats at different levels within the, bureaucratic hierarchy who were responsible for organizing the polls, from drawing up lists of eligible voters to making sure that there were enough boxes into which those same voters could deposit their voting slips. Elections also offered opportunities for people to air their frustrations with the state. Again, very often it was their encounters with it at the everyday level that were the frustrations that they aired Um, in these these situations. So again, turning to work that uh, others have done, um, but but which in a way coincided with with, um, the project that William Gould and I um, were running. In her 2017 um, study, How India Became Democratic, um, which provides really a very detailed exploration of the preparations underpinning India's first general election over the winter of 1951-52, Ornit Shani um, argues that the drawing up of electoral rolls based on universal franchise ahead of, rather than following, the promulgation of the constitution, because those rolls, you know, were being put together way before the constitution was actually revealed in all its splendour, produced debates about citizenship, often driven from below by Indians of varying means, but also including Indians of more modest means. Um, While well, tremendous political and administrative efforts went into the making of the universal franchise for what was the largest electorate in democratic history, the production of the actual electoral roles themselves, you know, the, the paperwork that underpinned this exercise, um, informed the process of constitution making really from the ground upwards, so this is you know, a very, I suppose, poor summary of um, Key arguments in what Ornit Shani sought sought to present in that, that book. And from as early as November 1947, the Constituent Assembly Secretariat had set in motion the preparation of those draft electoral rolls based on universal franchise, implementing what would turn out to be the first, I suppose, constitutional promise to be fulfilled by the new Indian Republic namely the principle that every adult citizen would have the right to vote, with the aim of holding, um, quote, fresh general elections as early as possible after the new constitution came into force. Moreover, um, during the putting together of the lists, Sharni argues that more Indians grew to conceive of their voting right as a basic constitutional guarantee, and hence various citizens' organisations were established to safeguard the right of franchise that it promised. Numerous other Indians, meanwhile, fought to get their names entered on the roll to ensure their voting rights as citizens. As far as casting a vote itself was concerned, when the first Indian general elections were held between October 51 and February 1952, political figures across the spectrum expressed doubts about the readiness, the preparedness of India's largely rural society for universal suffrage. After all, as it, um, people reminded um, other um, priests, 85% of the electorate could neither read nor write. In addition, the size of the Indian general election was unprecedented at a global level. There were to be, and the the figures are huge, but there were to be around 25,000 candidates standing in or across central and state assemblies for something like four and a half thousand seats, 500 for the central parliament, the rest for provincial parliaments. There were almost 225,000 polling booths with two million steel boxes, ballot boxes, made from some huge amount of tons and tons of steel. Um, As William dug out in UP alone, there were 12,000 polling stations, 50,000 booths, while it was estimated that around half of the state's total police force of 55,000 were engaged in the maintenance of law and order during this time. Again, the, the figures go on, 16 and a half thousand clerks were appointed to collate the electoral rolls. Um, nearly 400,000 rings of paper used for printing the rolls. There were something like 56,000 presiding officers with a further 280,000 helpers and that 225,000 or so police officers. The voting stations themselves were spread over more than 1 million square miles. In the case of remote hill villages, Even bridges had apparently had to be specially constructed to facilitate people getting to the the polls to cast their vote. Mm -hmm. Maybe not so surprisingly, for one American observer, this all added up to a challenge of colossal proportions. Um, The well-known British observer, Penderel Moon for one, went so far as to suggest that it was an absurd farce watching millions of illiterate people registering their vote. In the event, levels of participation proved to be encouragingly high. Nairi's election speeches were delivered to around 2 million people at something like 300 mass meetings. In terms of turnout, Bombay, the city with the greatest density of polling stations, saw levels of around 70%. While in Trivandrum, Cochin, these reached nearly 80%. Despite the often large distances involved and the inaccessibility of many villages, some of which, um, the participation rather of rural voters living in vast constituencies, some of which had populations of over 350,000, was higher than in the towns. As we all know, or I think we will all be familiar with, um, election symbols were used to assist the illiterate cast their vote, you know, say a bullet cart for a party, an elephant for another, a hut for a third, a tree perhaps for another. Multiple ballot boxes, one for each party, were used to prevent mistakes by voters and Indian scientists had developed an indelible ink to foil impersonation that involved the use of some 400,000 files of ink. So just the sheer size and quantity and extent and scope of this election-related activity Um, did, I think, a great deal to um, not necessarily familiarise but um, introduce, in some cases, the new state to its new citizens. Ahead of the elections, a documentary on the franchise and its functions and the duty of the electorate was shown in thousands of cinemas and many more voters were reached through broadcasts from All India Radio. Posters and emblems were everywhere to be seen, in shops, on boards, on the old colonial statues. And for instance, it's said that in Bengal, a common practice was to paint vote for Congress on the backside of stray cows. Indeed, such was the success of these elections, despite inevitable complaints about electoral misdemeanors in due course, that the new US ambassador to India Chester Bowles changed his view. From initially thinking that the country would need a benevolent dictatorship for a period, he came to believe, also he commented, that illiteracy was no bar to quote intelligent voting. All the same in places such as UP, there were allegations in the run-up to the elections that were most, well, that were often rather centered on the choice and background of the candidates, mostly linked with black markets activities, other kinds of misdemeanor, but also involving accusations of nepotism and alleged association with communal organizations. There was likewise disgruntlement expressed regarding how far the Congress leadership had become distanced just in the short time since independence from the everyday concerns of ordinary citizens. However, despite claims regarding the deterioration of India's principal political party, there was a sense in the final months before the election that exercising the vote was an exercise in rights assertion itself. Newspapers were filled with discussions of how to overcome the aforementioned structural challenges of the electorate, so illiteracy, the distances and extent of the electoral operation itself, and even knotty problems of election expenses. So that's, in a sense, um, the situation in India, let's just say. So Mm. I've been been focusing on India. I'll turn my attention now to, to Pakistan. And when we turn our attention to to Pakistan, we see that events there there, um, during the early post-partition years unfolded somewhat differently. Um, Unlike Indians, Pakistanis did not have the opportunity to take part in a general election until 1970, so until nearly two decades after their neighbours had first gone to the polls as fully as full-fledged citizens with a vote to cast. Direct comparisons with India, as far as the experience of voting at a national level during excuse me, the first decade after independence, are, are tricky to draw. Um, all the same, people in Pakistan spent much of the 1950s actively anticipating elections, getting ready for them, and occasionally even participating in them at a provincial, more local level. So while the scale of Pakistanis experiments in democratic participation were considerably more tentative than their Indian equivalents. The significance invested in these occasions in terms of hope and expectation, I would suggest, could be just as high. Um, For both the new Pakistani state and its citizens, simply preparing to vote became a rite of passage as far as what being a citizen promised. With enormous emphasis placed on putting the necessary electoral scaffolding in place as a first necessary step. As in India, in Pakistan, um, voting or voter registration rather assumed enhanced meaning, particularly taking place as it did against the backdrop of the long-term impact of partitions' demographic upheavals. Indeed, to judge from available records, the authorities there at various levels expended a lot of effort during this period trying to work out who was living where and in what precise numbers as part of wider preparations in anticipation of voting. From periodic headcounts throughout the 1950s driven by the um, need to quantify the whereabouts of displaced refugees in cities such as Karachi and elsewhere, to the more specific preparation of electoral roles, number counting assumed political, even nation building significance. So in a similar fashion to the challenge facing India in that run up to um, the 1951-52, national general election there, this drawing up of electoral rolls, whether it's city or province or optimistically, as it turned out, national level, repeatedly tested the Pakistan state's capacity to identify, verify and record those of its new citizens deemed eligible to vote. In a number of cases, um, elections were postponed, if not cancelled, ostensibly because the authorities were, it seems, unable to make the necessary preparations in time, but also thanks on occasions to official concerns about the election's likely wrong outcomes. So if we take just some of some examples of this, um, in the case of the elections to the Karachi Municipal Corporation, so we're talking city level yeah, elections, that were scheduled for early um, 1953, the flaws were all too evident. Um, Council procedural maladministration produced a storm of public protest, leading one contemporary to comment that, quote, perfection in the use of one of the major instruments of representative democracy Free elections, fairly conducted, has not yet been attained in Pakistan, if the situation resulting from recent balloting for members of the Karachi Municipal Corporation is any indication. And despite all the talk beforehand about fair and well-organised elections, quote, in many wards, political, no polling arrangements, sorry, were not ready in time leading to many complaints about mismanagement and inefficiency. Both independent candidates and Muslim League candidates complained, say, that polling booths were just, were either not in place or closed at the scheduled voting times. So the practicalities left a great deal to be desired. When Pakistan's first provincial election had been held, was held in the Punjab in March 51, so going back a, a year or two before, those Karachi elections, quote, the shortage of housing, the high cost of rents, as well as utilities and food, unemployment and undisguised favouritism in the allotment of property was expected by many contemporaries to produce widespread opposition to anyone or anything associated with the central government. In due course, with the votes counted, the League emerged, perhaps suspiciously, victorious and the low turnout of only around 30%, together with the party's unexpectedly clear margin of victory, prompted widespread complaints that the election's been a farce, a mockery, and a fraud upon the electorate. Critics claimed that more than 50 contestants had won their seats precisely thanks to their relationship with government officials. And in many eyes, these kinds of quote, illegal tactics constituted a blot on the fair name of democracy. As a subsequent electoral reform commission report flagged up, quote, government servants had to be unequivocally directed to keep themselves altogether aloof from politics. They must not be allowed to canvass or otherwise interfere or use their influence in connection with or take part in elections to the legislative bodies Except by way of freely exercising their right, their own right to vote. This apparent high moral stance, albeit retrospectively, however, did not prevent the authorities themselves from playing a last minute Trump card on the day before those polls or the polling itself started. Bold newspaper headlines announced that an attempted coup and some of you will be familiar with this history, the Raal Pindi conspiracy had been foiled. Um, so just the day before these elections, there was this you know, shock horror headline that a conspiracy had been foiled. And while newspapers refrained from explicitly calling on voters to support the ruling party, the implication of this apparent coincidence was clear. The nation had been placed in danger. Um, Pakistanis, in this case Punjabis, needed to back the party that had averted this crisis, namely the Muslim League. On the other hand, perhaps surprisingly, um, the election for Sindh's Provincial Legislative Assembly that eventually took place in May 1953 after some delays, they had originally been scheduled for a year earlier but put off. Those elections impressed <coughs> some members of the public by the extent to which they appeared to be more, quote, fair and impartial than many had been expecting. The then election commissioner, Said Hashim Raza, it seems, had taken personal responsibility, at least he, he took personal credit, I suppose, for ensuring that the administration would perform its duties, in his words, honestly and impartially. He had told the province to quote set the election machinery in gear <coughs> outlining the measures that included different colored ballot boxes for the different parties so as to assist the illiterate and strict orders to government officials were, were made to remain aloof from factionism all the same i think we should note that district local polls which had been scheduled for the end of <coughs> march that same year were once more postponed so there's a continual sort of refrain of, of, of elections at different levels being postponed on the grounds that quote two elections at about the same time would overwhelm the administration. Now only one sixth of the voters in this Sind Legislative Assembly election were women, and this, I think, highlights or reminds us of the gendered realities involved in electoral participation at this time, and also of the additional challenges facing Pakistan's female citizens in the making. At the highest level, again, perhaps not surprisingly, the failure to include any women members in Pakistan's second Constituent Assembly in mid-1955 triggered a range of responses from female activists who complained that, quote, women must have a voice in the lawmaking of their country, especially when the question of their rights is involved. If at the very outset they are ignored, how can they hope to get justice in matters concerning them? In 1956, when the assembly, minus any direct female involvement, had finished drafting the constitutional paperwork, it was in their capacity as, quote, surprised and pained citizens that these same female activists argued that the country's leaders had, quote, called on us or called upon us many times over the past eight years to play our full part in the life of the nation. And yet they had not repaid this commitment by guaranteeing our rights. Meanwhile, of course, the key provincial election in terms of wider all Pakistan political impact was the um, one that had taken place in, my screen that had taken place um, in East Bengal in March 1954 whose results rippled or I should maybe say ripped across the country as a whole. this poll involved some 20 million voters of whom the vast majority had never participated in any election before. despite the rhetoric of East Bengal's incumbent um, Muslim League ministry, which repeatedly stressed its expected victory, One report reminded observers that, quote, the ordinary man is made aware at every point of an administration and a political party which seem to him to be full of individuals who are personally corrupt and feathering their own nests at his expense. As another contemporary commented, quote, the Muslim League is sparing no effort on the organizational side to win this election controlling as they do the electoral machinery, the administration, the police and ample funds, they stand a good chance of pulling it off by hook or by crook. The fact is that the election is not free and fair and the League commands infinitely greater resources of inducement of force and fraud than the United Front, the opposition coalition, which actually did in those elections. So my my last example today, I suppose, returns to my own personal comfort zone, namely the city of Karachi, where, again, we're talking about municipal elections that took place um, in April 1958, so towards the end of the 1950s, and which, Karachi still being the federal capital, were regarded by contemporaries as a crucial test of public opinion when national elections still appeared, albeit optimistically, to be in the offing. In the event, these election results confirmed the faction-ridden nature of the city's um, politics and public frustrations with mainstream politicians more than anything else. So these Karachi-level elections once again exposed the practical challenges involved in, say, registering citizens to vote. With the names of only around a quarter, that was about 450,000, of the city's eligible electorate having been included in those lists drawn up by the end of February that year. Holding Pakistani nationality was still not at that time an automatic requirement or proof of voter ele- eligibility. Instead, with formal nationality still you know, many cases to be confirmed. The criteria were firstly adulthood, um, secondly a minimum of one year's residence in the city, and thirdly appearing on the electoral roll itself. So there's a bit of a sort of, um, sort of circular, circular um, process at work. This meant, though, that people still living on footpaths, as many many were in Karachi in the late 50s, were restricted from voting. As they had no officially recognized fixed abode. And so citizenship was this very sort of, um, uh, yeah, um, what was I? I was going to say sticky, but I didn't mean that, but um, uh, fluid, fluid concept, or reality, perhaps is a better word. Anyway, before the, bulk, the polls took place, Forecasts suggested that the city would remain a stronghold of the Muslim League, yet again that sort of optimistic expectation on the part of, of um, from the forecasters, helped by support from Karachi's large refugee population. As it turned out, the election results revealed a picture of political life that was far less cut and dried. For a start, the elections demonstrated an urgent need for electoral procedures to be tightened up if a general election was going to stand any chance of being free from charges of vote rigging. And party organization, generally speaking, was also going to have to step up a gear. This was apparent from how in contrast to the league, the Jamaat-e-Islami outperformed expectations, winning 18 of the 25 seats that it contested. As well as running a more tightly organized campaign, it's manifesto offered a raft of practical solutions Karachi's many problems. On the one hand, it promised somehow to provide housing and improved hygiene facilities, both needed. On the other, it committed to bringing about Karachi's moral uplift um, through a program of education, abolition and prohibition. According to Jamaat leaders, their party's success in these, albeit municipal level elections, hinged on voter disillusionment with established parties and politicians whose failure to deliver on repeated provinces over the previous decade alienated voters or at least alienated a, a relatively significant proportion of them. Either way, elections such as these in Karachi highlighted the frustrations of people living in the city with their everyday circumstances, their daily trials and tribulations. While the authorities decision to dissolve the corporation was presented as a likely relief to quote the two million exploited, harassed and despoiled citizens of Karachi. others suggested that quote in the present democratic age, this is before the the military had, had intervened and taken power, the death of any democratic organization at the hands of government cannot be considered proper. Comments such as these, I suppose, point to high levels Of contemporary public concern regarding exactly what method of action over the longer run would be taken to quote reform the irregularities and make the corporation a democratic organisation and the same questions could also have been asked of the country more broadly at what was a very um, delicate time let's say in Pakistan's political um, story so um, I'm really coming around to my conclusion now. So this is not a hugely long paper. I hope that gives us more time to discuss and for me to hear you know, your own thoughts. But I'll just I'll just put some concluding thoughts together, I'll just with some pictures to look at in the backdrop. So what I've tried to do in this paper is address just one aspect of what is clearly a much larger issue, namely the process of people across South Asia getting their voices as citizens. Heard through the mechanisms of elections at one level or another in the early post-colonial years. Across South Asia, um, what citizenship meant remained a work in progress. In this context, voting and equally not voting came to represent the degree of assumed progress, and I put that in inverted commas, that each country was making, as far as turning people who had formerly been subjects, under colonial rule, very restricted when it came to things like the franchise, into bona fide citizens was concerned and with that right, that intrinsic inherent right to vote. In India, as I've indicated, while the outcome of the first na- national elections proved to be more successful than some observers had anticipated, the polls provided people with the opportunity to vent their frustrations alongside engaging with the state in a new fashion. In a new fashion for the vast majority of them. In Pakistan the deceptively simple act of casting a vote was less less straightforward and arguably a more unsatisfying process, but elections that did take place there proved to be well supported on the whole at the local level at least, even if the various representatives of the state involved went to great pains to try to secure the outcomes that they desired. In many ways, um, ordinary citizens um, in both India and Pakistan tended to share similar assumptions that exercising their democratic democratic rights was an inescapable dynamic of, quote, political modernity. Thanks to the ongoing interaction over matters such as the preparation of those electoral rolls, we can see the idea of universal franchise becoming meaningful, at least more meaningful, having some kind of meaning For both Indians and Pakistanis. Even when elections failed to materialize in Pakistan or failed to keep to their original timetable, I think we should not overlook the fact that they remained keenly anticipated and the subject of much often heated public discussion articulated in different forums. So, I suppose what William and I hoped that our study, you know, boundaries of belonging, would encourage was further thinking about the changing modes of active political citizenship, which were shaped by forms of political engagement in Pakistan and India in the late 40s and 50s. In the first five years, let's say after independence, both new states faced in many ways comparable public complaints regarding everyday governance, which were to a great extent interrelated and closely connected. In both the everyday problems that people encountered, however, did not create a sense of fatalism about political redress or undermine popular belief. In the importance of representation, even though factional politics quickly mapped onto the patronage networks of resource allocation. Accusations of maladministration, corruption and the like, it would seem did not hinder. Indians and Pakistanis from exercising or seeking to exercise what they they saw as their hard-won democratic rights as citizens of new states excited about what the future held. So that's where I'll end. I I just put some slides up at the end, you might be thinking how do these slides relate to anything she's just been saying, but I thought well, you know, a kind of uh, a slide that at least gave you a glimpse of contemporary Pakistani Elections um, might be of interest. So, thank you for listening.